everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Adventures in Theatre History. We are releasing this episode on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2021. Tomorrow is, of course, New Year's Day 2022, and as every Philadelphian knows, New Year's Day is when the Mummers Parade takes place. Now, I must confess that I myself was completely ignorant of the Mummers Parade before I moved to this area. It's a Philadelphia thing, and its reputation hasn't traveled much beyond that. As far as major urban holiday parades go, it's much less well-known than Rio de Janeiro's Carnival or New Orleans' Mardi Gras or even New York City's St. Patrick's Day Parade. Indeed, until the 2018 post-Super Bowl victory speech, hoarsely yelled at a gleeful crowd of Philadelphians by the Eagles center Jason Kelsey in full mummer's regalia of an enormous green, purple, and white costume, a sparkly turban adorned with shamrocks. Most of the rest of America had never even seen a mummer either. If you're listening to this program outside of the United States, as I know some of you are, you still may not know what I'm talking about. You'll just have to Google it. Mummer is M-U-M-M-E-R, and Kelsey is K-E-L-C-E. But after you've done Googling that, if you still don't know what the Mummer's Parade is, well, I put some video links in the notes for this episode. Take a look at them, and you'll get both an eyeful and an earful of mummery. I'm recording this just a few days before the annual Philadelphia Mummers Parade, and as of this moment, it is indeed scheduled to happen. Knock wood. Last year, it was canceled due to the pandemic, and even this year, Philadelphia city officials are requiring spectators along the parade route to wear masks. Of course, Sometimes the parade is rescheduled anyway due to inclement weather. It's January, after all. And I note the forecast this year is for lots of rain. Let's hope everything goes okay. The tradition of holiday mumming, raucous and socially disruptive partying over the midwinter holidays, goes way back in Philadelphia tradition. Indeed, it seems to predate the founding of the city by William Penn, having been brought over by Swedish settlers who got here before him. In fact, it was in today's South Philadelphia, near where the old Swedish church can still be found, that the hot center of mummer activity has always been to the south of the city center, and it's still there today in the Irish-American neighborhood of Pennsport, where the multitude of Mummers clubhouses and even the Mummer Museum are all located along 2nd Street, or 2 Street, as it's known in Philly talk. Unofficial Christmas night parading up from South Philadelphia by Mummers along Broad Street, passing by such staid elite institutions as the Academy of Music that we talked about in our last episode, has been happening in Philadelphia since at least the Civil War. 
The Mummer's destination was Philadelphia City Hall in Center Square, which was under construction for decades in the 19th century, but finally was completed in 1894. The parade then made the circuit around the seat of civic power, as if to both challenge it and also demanding to be seen by it. Though there were constant efforts by city officials to calm the more rowdy aspects of Philadelphia streetlight during that period, as we also discussed, by 1901, in an effort to regulate, contain, and organize the chaotic partying, the Mummers Parade was made an official city event. The fantastically adorned procession of Mummers clubs, brigades, and their fierce competitions to outdo each other always attracts a lot of local attention around here. And the song, Odem Golden Slippers, and the dance known as the Mummers Strut, a version of the classic Cakewalk, has been part of the parade since the 1920s. Since the late 20th century, the parade has been annually televised on local television, and the amazing theatrical competition of the fancy brigades who do Broadway-style production numbers occurs in the evening at the Philadelphia Convention Center. Now, all of this preview is in the way of introducing what follows. This is not a regular episode that I myself have researched and written and narrated. Indeed, I am once again very grateful for the good offices of the theater historian and my fellow theater history podcaster, Mike Leeger. In November of 2019, Mike interviewed Dr. Christian Ducombe, and together they talked about the Philadelphia Mummers Parade as it relates to the very particular aspect of theater history, and most particularly to the elements of the parade known as the Wenches Brigades. After this introduction, I'm going to play for you the entire interview between Mike and Christian Ducombe, and although the interview is a different format than I usually employ on this podcast, I know you will be fascinated by their conversation. I'm hoping to do more interviews myself on this podcast in the future with other scholars and with other actual participants in Philadelphia theater history. Because I am following the lead of many more eminent and well-trained scholars than myself in considering the Mummers Parade an absolutely integral part of Philadelphia theater history. Indeed, as Dr. Ducombe remarks in his 2017 book, Haunted City, Three Centuries of Racial Impersonation in Philadelphia, the parade itself is rather like a vessel in which centuries of historic theatrical practices have been poured, preserved, and constantly reenacted, or haunted, in his terms. Even though most of the participants in the parade could not name these traditions or describe them or indeed really care that much about them, other than that they are aware that they are doing something that expresses a particular cultural and social expression that means a lot to them. And I also follow many other scholars' lead in regarding the parade as an essential theatrical event, even though it is paradoxically impossible to see the parade in its entirety like a play. As Ducombe, who has himself performed as a mummer in his day, writes in his book, quote, To perform in a parade is to occupy a space of time that is filled, always filled, with moving Parade participants tend to organize themselves into groups, bands, clubs, brigades, and so on, processing along a route and performing for street-side audiences as they go. These groups of parade performances are doubly on the move as they dance, play music, engage spectators, and enact short scenes or tableau, 
You can stand still and watch a parade from beginning to end, and it's easy to succumb to the illusion that one has seen it all. But each group of paraders passes through the spectator's field of vision for only a few moments. Close quotes. Indeed, the Philadelphia Mummers Parade tends to last all of New Year's Day, so the energy and commitment of the participants and the audiences who witness it is impressive. And of course, being Philadelphia, its history and its present have often sparked considerable opposition and controversy. And that is to a great part due to some of the theatrical traditions inextricably preserved in it. But I will let our guest podcasters explain about that. Here, in its entirety, is the interview between Mike Leeger and Christian Ducombe as it first appeared slightly over three years ago on HowlRound's The Theater History Podcast. The interview is about half an hour long, so I'll be back again after it's over to wrap things up. Here we go. Hi. And welcome to the Theater History Podcast. I'm Mike Leeger. We live in a time when most of us are increasingly aware of and sensitive to issues pertaining to race. And it's tempting to think that we've drawn a clear dividing line between the values of our era and the stereotypes of performance traditions from the past. However, as today's guest reveals, the legacy of phenomena such as blackface performance and the minstrel show still lingers in our culture in surprising and disturbing ways. Dr. Christian Decombe joins us for this episode to talk about the Philadelphia Mummers Parade and the persistence of a figure known as the Mummers Wench. Christian is an assistant professor of theater at Colgate University and the author of Haunted City, Three Centuries of Racial Impersonation in Philadelphia, as well as the essay, The Wenches of the Philadelphia Mummers Parade, a performance genealogy, which you can find in the book Performing Utopia. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to to be speaking with you today. Can you describe the Mummers Parade, for those of us who might not be as familiar with it, and can you tell us a little bit about its relation to blackface performance? Sure. Uh, The Mummers Parade has been an official city-sanctioned Philadelphia tradition since 1901. Uh, So in 1901, for New Year's, um, the city decided to sponsor a parade. uh, And this decision to sponsor a parade, it it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, There had been, for decades prior, lots and lots of street performances happening between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve some of which could turn violent and many of which involved the city's various ethnic and racial communities kind of policing their boundaries, right? So performances that were celebratory, but performances that also um, could be staging grounds for communal conflict. So by organizing a city-sanctioned parade, the idea was simply to, to take this chaotic energy that it was very difficult to that was very difficult to control and channel it into an official event that happened during daylight hours along one major thoroughfare and could become a, a vehicle for respectability for the mostly male working class participants in the city's more informal street festivities. At this time, you know, the turn of the 20th century, the minstrel show was in decline, as many of your listeners probably know. Um, minstrelsy really peaked in popularity 
in uh, the 1840s and 50s, and then after the Civil War remained popular, but was um, gradually eclipsed by vaudeville um, in the early 20th century. However, in Philadelphia, the minstrel show seems to have persisted a little bit longer than in other major northern U.S. cities. So the minstrel repertoire was still quite active. And I think that as community performers were looking to stage uh, more formal presentations as part of the Mummers Parade, um, they often drew on the minstrel repertoire because that was the the popular theater of their time and place. It was the theater that they were familiar with. So you see characters, dance steps, costuming and makeup styles, um, songs transmitted from late minstrelsy into the early Mummers Parade. And there's some uh, sketchy evidence that uh, at least one minstrel show producer in Philadelphia was involved in the Mummers in um, their first couple of decades of official operation. So um, there may or may not have been a a kind of direct line um, for some of this uh, minstrel show repertory to make it into the Mummers Parade. But regardless, um, it it became part of the structure of the parade nonetheless. So you see, for example, the Mummers Parade string bands looking an awful lot like minstrel show stage bands, just in in terms of the style of music that they played, um, the instrumentation, etc. And then, of course, the Mummers Parade continued to develop over time, develop some of its own distinctive styles, and there were other influences on the parade besides the minstrel show. But I think the fact that um, the beginnings of the official parade coincided with, you know, a, a moment when minstrelsy was very well established and still popular in working class culture really helped to cement the the minstrel repertoire as a bedrock of a lot of mummers performances now the particular figure that you talk about in your essay the wenches of the philadelphia mummers parade is this uh, this figure the mummers wench who or what is this figure and and where does it come from Okay, well, I think there are two ways to answer that question. Um, one of them is to answer it theatrically, like what is the theater history behind this character? And that's what I'll, I'll go into first. The second way to answer the question is who performs this role, right? Um, what, what, why is this role attractive and to whom is it attractive in the parade in both our contemporary 21st century moment and also historically? So in terms of theater history, m- many many of your listeners may know this, but I, I, I think it's worth reviewing a little bit of the history of the minstrel show and how it came to be. The minstrel show as an evening-length autonomous theatrical genre emerges somewhere between 1842 and 1843. Um, And it seems to have sprung up more or less simultaneously in Buffalo, New York City, and Philadelphia, where you have, for the first time, larger groups of blackface performers performing together and entertaining audiences for something more than just an entre-act song and dance number, right? Before the minstrel show really comes into being in 1842, 1843, many of the acts that would become part of the minstrel show already existed, at least in some nascent form, um, mostly as intra-act entertainments. So for some time prior to the advent of the minstrel show, white men in blackface and drag had been performing to entertain audiences in the popular theater. Um, this goes back at least until it dates at least from the late 1820s, if not perhaps a bit earlier. And so this figure of the blackface wench 
becomes part of the early minstrel show, um, but does not develop within the minstrel show, right? It was a, a blackface act that was kind of taken and appropriated and adapted into minstrelsy. And um, one of the things that I think it's important to say about the wench, and, and many other people have, have noted this, um, probably most famously Eric Lott in his book Love and Theft, the wench made no attempt at verisimilitude, right? This was not an attempt for male performers white male performers to pass as women, black women, white women, any woman, right? It was rather a display of masculinity through the contrast between female dress and the obvious masculine physique of the performers. And very often the Wench Act had explicitly or implicitly anti-feminist message embedded within it. Part of how we know this is from the lyrics of some of the Wench, Wench songs, which are quite derogatory towards women, um, songs like Lucy Long, for example. But we also know it from the costuming practices associated with the Wench. Um, the Wench almost always wore bloomers. And bloomers were a, a signature garment of the women's rights and women's suffrage movements. Um, you know, women wanting to to wear something more like pants in order to be regarded as something closer to citizens, right, was something that the Wench Act openly held up for mockery. One of the reasons that I think the Wench Act of the antebellum minstrel show is connected genealogically to the Wench Act of the Contemporary Mummers Parade is that the Mummers Wench still wears bloomers. Um, this is a, a costume piece that's been retained um, now for over 150 years in the Wench Act. And uh, it's unlikely that most people who perform as wenches today know or frankly care much about the fact that bloomers were associated with women's rights and women's suffrage and were worn parodically um, by wenches in the minstrel show. But nonetheless, um, you know, the persistence of this costume piece suggests that there is a line of historical connection between the minstrel show wench act and the mummers wench act. Now, in terms of, you know, why this figure of the wench would still be popular in the contemporary mummers parade and, and who performs as wenches, the Mummers Parade has, at this point, about 8,000 participants. That's down from a peak of 12,000 participants in the early to mid-1980s. So the parade is fading somewhat in popularity. There are not as many spectators at the parade as there were in its heyday. But the Wench Brigades offer a fairly easy way to participate in the Mummers Parade. Um, if you're going to, so the Mummers Parade is, it's um, almost Byzantine in terms of its organization. There are all of these different clubs and divisions and competing categories in which one can participate. Some of them involve a high degree of commitment. If you're going to play in a Mummers Parade string band, you need to, you need to play an instrument and you need to play it well and you need to be able to play it on parade in the cold on New Year's Day. If you're in a fancy club or fancy brigade, you need to um, have the time and money to purchase an expensive costume and rehearse Broadway-style choreography and, again, be ready and willing to perform it in the cold on New Year's Day. The Wench Brigades don't rehearse much. They wear bloomers and dresses. They carry parasols. They drink beer. Uh, they get together at a clubhouse, you know, uh, maybe starting in, in the couple days after Christmas to get ready. They select a theme, usually a couple months beforehand, so that they can order their costumes. But if you've got a couple hundred bucks and, you know, a willingness to, to go out on the street and be part of the parade, you can perform as a wench. Um, so the barriers are very low. 
some mummers clubs in other divisions um, have in fact switched over to competing as wench brigades in recent years, and the wenches are the only area of the parade that really seems to be growing. So there's something fun. There's obviously something fun about um, about being in the parade, and being a wench is the easiest way to do it. Um, and so I think that that is a large part of what's, you know, continuing to, to drive the popularity of the wench brigades. Now, uh, the wenches are controversial because many Philadelphians know their history. Um, they know that this is a figure that's associated in, in some loose way with blackface performance because most of the wenches wore blackface until 1963 or 1964. And the wenches are sometimes deliberately politically provocative. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a fracas over one of the wenches in the parade carrying a sign that said, wench lives matter, um, an obvious parody of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, that's especially freighted given who the wenches are, right? Given that they're this group of mostly white men who associate themselves knowingly with a performance tradition that has a racist past. So the the wenches, they're a complex figure in theater history and they're a complex figure in the parade because I don't think that the desire to publicly exhibit misogyny or racism or homophobia is what drives most contemporary wenches to perform. But nonetheless, it's kind of a lack of concern for those issues, a lack of thought as to how other citizens of the city might feel about the persistence of this tradition that makes the wenches continuously a, a lightning rod, you know, in, in a way that I think mirrors and microcosm our contemporary national political dilemmas where, you know, m many commentators agree that, you know, not all supporters of Donald Trump are overtly racist, but they don't object to associating themselves and voting for a president who is overtly racist and who makes racist comments and pursues racist policies. So what to make of that, right? Um, what to make of this, this sort of um, ambivalent place where a lot of white Americans, see, even if they're not, you know, even if they don't profess racist beliefs themselves, are still um, willing to countenance racism in, in public life. And, uh, and I think that, you know, the part of why I wanted to study the Mummers Parade is, is it offers a, a local and theatrically rich example of that dilemma. Yeah, so this is this really complicated, thorny problem, as you say. There's sort of perhaps lack of concern about the sensitivities of some of the people who might be witnessing this performance in the parade. Uh, but at the same time, the way that this has become kind of this tradition within the city of Philadelphia. Can you talk to us about what happens in the 1960s? How does the height of the civil rights movement bring about a challenge to traditions like the Mummer's Wench? The civil rights movement in Philadelphia was was quite strong, and it really achieved, I think, a a zenith of sorts in 1963-1964, and this came about for a couple of reasons. Um, there'd been, you know, for a long time in Philly, a very active NAACP chapter. A man named Cecil B. Moore was elected local chapter president of the NAACP 
in the early 1960s. Moore was much more willing than previous leaders to be confrontational, um, to step outside of the respectability politics that um, the, the NAACP had become known for by that point in history. So he organized street protests over all sorts of issues, whether it was the exclusion of African Americans from labor union membership, the discriminatory, discriminatory treatment uh, by the city with regards to the distribution of public services, or with regards to the way that Black people were depicted in the Mummers Parade. So Cecil B. Moore teamed up with the Congress of Racial Equality in 1963 to protest not just the Mummers Wench, but more broadly, the practice of blackface masking in the Mummers Parade, which was quite pervasive. And they decided to attack this practice in two ways. The first was through a legal challenge. And an attorney uh, working for the NAACP at the time named Charles Bowser filed suit in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas to say, given that this is a parade that receives city funding and happens in public space, this display of racist performance, essentially, of, you know, blackface worn by thousands of men on New Year's Day shouldn't be allowed, right? And then the, the second tactic that this coalition of civil rights groups adopted was to actually try to block the parade from happening on the street. So I've talked to people on background um, who were on both sides of this confrontation. And what people have told me is that it could have turned into a fairly ugly and violent race riot between the mummers and the civil rights protesters. And, and there are a few reasons that that did not happen. One of them has to do with the weather in Philadelphia on New Year's Day. Um, when it's really exceptionally cold and snowy on New Year's, the parade is sometimes delayed for a few days. And that happened in 1964. The parade was pushed back from January 1st to January 4th because of a big New Year's Day snowstorm. And that, that kind of um, that gave people a little bit of time to cool off. There was also another dynamic at work within the African-American community in Philadelphia where, you know, the civil rights movement, of course, spoke for that community. But there were other constituencies in the community as well. A lot of African-American musicians in Philly worked for mummers groups and especially for wench brigades to provide on a hired basis accompaniment to the performances. And some of these relationships between African-American brass bands and um, individual wench brigades dated back decades. And there were co signed contracts in place. And there were some black musicians in, in Philly, uh, probably because they wanted to get paid, maybe because they sympathized with the mummers. I don't really know who, who wanted to perform in the parade, even though civil rights organizations were calling for a boycott and a protest. So that created some dissension within the black community. And then a lot of ministers in, in the city called for a boycott of the parade. They called for African-Americans um, not to attend and not to participate in any way on a hired basis or otherwise, but they didn't necessarily endorse the call for a protest. So, um, you know, on the one hand, you have civil rights leaders who are saying, let's fight this in court, let's go and fight it on the streets. On the other hand, you have ministers who are saying, let's boycott this, let's really dissociate ourselves from it and, and, and send a clear message that way, but be uh, perhaps a little bit less confrontational. And 
And then a smaller but still important um, and vocal group of musicians who didn't want to participate in either the protests or the boycott. So one one of the ways in which I try to historicize this moment is that it was actually a moment that exposed some tensions within the Black community in Philadelphia over how best to fight to engage in the important and justified fight for civil rights. And, you know, these controversies came to the surface with the Mummers Parade in a way that they didn't with, say, protests over city services or labor union membership, where there was clearly unity that, you know, these are issues that needed to be addressed. But because the Mummers Parade, I think, engages, it's a form of symbolic politics on the one hand, um, and it's also something that's deeply historically rooted on the other, and that um, reflects many, many decades of engagement and cross-appropriation between Black and white culture in Philadelphia, the positions that people took on it were a little bit more complicated. In the end, though, you know, the, the legal challenge was upheld. Mummers were banned from wearing blackface on Broad Street on the parade route. They were not banned from wearing blackface elsewhere in the city, including at the, the large after party that happens on 2nd Street or 2 Street, which is um, kind of the heart of uh, an Irish-American ethnic enclave in South Philadelphia, where many of the Mummers groups have clubhouses. And then by, you know, by the following year, by New Year's 1965, blackface went from being a pervasive disguise that you you would see, you know, thousands of people wearing um, openly on the parade route to being something that um, you, you saw far less commonly and that when you did see it, it was usually on the side streets, usually at the after party. And that that's continued to be the case. I, I mean, I've attended the Mummers Parade many times as a spectator and as a participant. I've never not seen blackface but I've never seen more than a few people in blackface. So um, it, it, the practice persists, but it persists m much less frequently and much less openly than it did before the, the civil rights challenges. And I think that's a, a detente that most people in Philly can live with, even if many Philadelphians and even many mummers are offended by the continued use of blackface by certain members of the mummers community. So at one point in your article, you quote the scholar W.T. Lehman, who points out all the ways in which elements of minstrel shows crept into our popular culture. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically then asks, why do we talk about this style of performance as though it's a thing of the past? What does your research into mummers wenches uh, and the larger context of, of the Philadelphia Mummers Parade suggest to you about the legacy of blackface performance and its continued influence on our culture? Well, th that is, again, a very good question. And uh, I, I do. So um, for, for those of you who may be interested in tracking this down, you know, I, I use um, W.T. Lehman's phrase, the blackface lore cycle, which he uses to describe the way in which blackface kind of cyclically recurs in American culture and crops up in unexpected places. Um, you know, he analyzes, for example, MC Hammer's dances in the early 1990s and, and the way in which they're connected to, um, you know, both to African-American dance, but also to certain um, minstrel show appropriations of black dance 
that seemed to have faded away and yet they come back. Right. Um, and so I, I sort of draw on that loosely, um, to inspire my own analysis of, of the mummer's wench. And, um, I want to try to respond to this question with both an answer that's specific to Philadelphia and the mummer's parade and an answer that's, that's broader. And I think that gestures outward globally. One of the things that I write about in the introduction to my book, Haunted City, is a controversy that erupted in 1987 over an exhibit on the Mummers Parade in City Hall in Philadelphia. And as part of this exhibit, there were a number of black and white photographs that had been taken in 1984 by a photographer named James Conroy that were hung um, outside the city council chambers and outside the mayor's office. Now, this was at a time when Philadelphia had its first African-American mayor, Wilson Good, who is best remembered for those of you who uh, know something about Philly for the, the move bombing a little bit later on, uh, the, the incident where this black collective uh, that was living in, in West Philly um, in conditions that a lot of neighbors had been complaining about. They'd been evicted. They hadn't listened. Eventually, Wilson Good ordered the, the firebombing of this compound and um, a number of people died, including several children. So uh, he's not he's not a mayor who's fondly remembered. But, um, you know, before all this happened, he was really seen as a champion of um, black rights in Philadelphia. It was enormously significant um, that the city had finally elected a a black mayor after having, you know, a very large African-American population that had been underrepresented in city politics for a long time. So Wilson Good did not like these photographs, and he and his administration ordered that they be taken down. And that infuriated the artist and also the organizers of the exhibit because the photographs did not actually show performers in blackface. They appeared to show performers in blackface because the photographs were black and white, but the photographer attested that these performers were wearing purple and blue and dark green makeup, right? They were not in blackface. So the technology of black and white photography had created a, an optical illusion of sorts that made it seem as though blackface was being celebrated as part of the contemporary Mummers Parade. And my read on these photographs is that both sides of this debate have a point. You know, the, the defenders of the photographs are right about what the photographs actually depict. And they're also right that there's something troubling about, um, you know, a public art exhibition being censored in City Hall because the mayor happens to dislike its politics. At the same time, you know, I've, I've read through some of the judges' notes from the Mummers Parade from, you know, the time of the blackface controversy in 1963-64 forward. And one thing that comes up again and again in these notes is the use of dark colored makeup. And I think that this was for many mummers a, a substitute for blackface. If blackface was banned, but purple face or blue face or dark green face were not banned, then it was a way to, to sort of maintain something close to blackface without actually getting arrested or kicked off the parade route. You still frequently see yellow face and brown face in the parade. Um, there's at least one account of a group of mummers in purple makeup painting black streaks on their faces after they finished their performance at City Hall at the terminus of the parade route. So dark colored makeup in some ways substituted for blackface. And the black and white photographs 
reveal that, right? They, they reveal what I, what I, uh, what I call, um, drawing on another Mummer scholar, um, named Elizabeth Layton, uh, the strategically invisible way in which blackface persists in the parade. And I think that's, that's where we are now with regards to this legacy in, in our theater culture, our performance culture, and our, our popular culture. Blackface when performed explicitly, draws denunciations from all quarters. But close analogs to blackface, whether musical, visual, sartorial, etc., um, are still to be found everywhere. I, I, I kind of uh, keep an ongoing log of this, but it, it seems that every few weeks, at least, there's a story somewhere in the world about someone, some um, prominent performer appearing in blackface on TV or at a public event or on stage, and um, this almost reflexive outcry that happens. And the most recent incident was a, um, a comedian in Japan named Masatoshi Harada, I believe, who uh, appeared in a New Year's Eve performance on television in blackface and a kinky wig and a Detroit Lions jacket trying to evoke an Eddie Murphy character from a 1980s film, right? And so blackface, I mean, as... And this has been noted by by many scholars before me. Blackface traveled well beyond the borders of the U.S. in the 19th century. I mean, blackface touring acts were popular in England right around the same time that they became popular in the U.S. And blackface tours to South Africa, to Australia, to through continental Europe um, were quite common by the the latter part of the 19th century. So you know, blackface has a has a global legacy. And, you know, we we condemn it when we see it explicitly, but I think we overlook it when it's veiled, whether by a slight change in the color of the makeup or a, a slight inflection of uh, of a performance that allows us to to draw this line that you spoke of in your introduction to the interview, right? A, a line between how past performance traditions dealt with race and how we deal with race in theater and performance today. And I think that line is rather blurry, right? And I'm not, I'm not sure what the implications of that are. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the danger in historicizing contemporary performance practices with regards to the minstrel show's legacy or to blackface legacies is that it, um, you know, it, it, it brings about a, a kind of a censorious attitude towards some of this material that, you know, we need to, we need to excise it. I don't think we need to excise it. In fact, I mean, I I love the Mummers Parade, and I hope that it has many more years and and decades of success as a local tradition. But I think the Mummers need to grapple with this history, you know, and I, I think that it needs to be openly acknowledged. It needs to be discussed. That that could be an opening for some meaningful intergroup dialogue in Philadelphia, which is still, like many large American cities, um, quite segregated, quite racially divided. And there's more and more interest in the Mummers Parade uh, from people outside side uh, the traditional you know white working class communities that have provided the majority of mummers performers and I think the parade can and should become more diverse and that that's only going to happen if the parade's racist legacy is is brought out into the open to be discussed and I'm open to the wenches making arguments for maintaining their tradition you know I, I'm, I'm not I don't think that I don't think their tradition should be banned but I think they should be held accountable for it and uh, and I think that that's really the contribution that I, I hope this work makes you know to debates 
debates in Philly over the Mummers Parade, but also to larger debates in theater scholarship and in popular culture over blackface and its legacies that, you know, calling these legacies out, addressing them has the power through criticism, through openness, through historical engagement to start to bring about change, not by not by trying to change either the present or the past, but simply to acknowledge uncomfortable parts of the past that are still with us in the present. And then to see where that where that leads us, you know, as as citizens, as scholars and as artists with regards to this legacy. We'll post additional links and information that will let you explore the legacy of the minstrel show and learn more about the Mummers Parade. Christian, thank you so much for illuminating this complicated piece of Philadelphia's performance history. All right. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to continue today's conversation, please visit HowlRound.com and follow HowlRound and at Theatre History on Twitter and Facebook. You can also visit our website at TheatreHistoryPodcast.net, where you can find links to all of our episodes. And you can email your questions and comments about the show to TheatreHistory at TheatreHistoryPodcast.net. A big thank you to the staff at HowlRound who make this show possible. Our theme music is The Black Crook Gallop, which comes to us courtesy of the New York Public Library Libretto Project and Adam Roberts. Thanks as well to Tip Cress, who designed our logo. And finally, thank you for listening. Hi everyone, it's me again, just jumping in to thank Mike Leeger for generously sharing his audio of the interview with Christian Ducombe. I'm hoping to do more collaborations with Mike's show and indeed with other theater history podcasts in the future. I'll be watching the Mummers Parade on TV this year, though I admit my favorite part is the evening competition of the Fancy Brigades, which almost invariably features astoundingly inventive showmanship and a passion for the theatrical that never fails to impress. As we listen to the Furco String Band, Play the iconic mummer tune, James A. Bland's composition, O Dem Golden Slippers. I'd also like to thank Christian Ducombe, and again, I highly recommend his book, Haunted City, to you. I'll be using it as a prime resource, along with the work of other scholars, when we discuss Philadelphia's essential role in the creation and the heyday of the minstrel show in America. Although 19th century blackface minstrelsy is not something to be proud of, as Christian Ducombe reminds us, its influence is so pervasive throughout the world now that we cannot ignore it. Indeed, it is essential to acknowledge and describe it if we wish to fully continue our self-appointed task of documenting the totality of the history of theater in Philadelphia over the years. And the Mummers Parade and its wench brigades are part of that history. It's complex, but it's a story worth knowing about. I'll leave you with this final quote from Ducombe's book. Quote, Today, Mummers wenches are the living messengers of both the Antebellum Wench Act and the turn-of-the-century cakewalk strutting to the music of black brass bands produced by and producing an interracial performance genealogy with no single origin and no single end. I'm Peter Schmitz, and our theme music and sound engineering or by Christopher Mark Colucci. Thanks for coming along on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia. (laughs) ¶¶